0: Now, our, um, as we've been going through, through our Old Testament, doing our overview, uh, we get to the book of Hosea now, and uh, Hosea is uh, one of the most striking and disturbing books in the Old Testament. Uh, the book is really an extended accusation against Israel because they haven't been faithful to God, and so it's, it's a difficult book to read because of the ways, ah, you know what, I've already got the recording going on. Thank you, a faithful deacon, uh, reminding me to record. Uh, But we probably, if if I were to ask you, what is the thing that stands out about the book of Hosea, I think that there's one thing that would stand out about Hosea. Who can tell me what that is? Well, no, I'll try. Well, that's not what I have in mind. (laughs) He's called to marry marry a prostitute. Pretty, not a lot of the prophets have that call. (laughs) Um, Hosea does. And it's the thing that when people think about Hosea, it's the thing that stands out. It's the hard thing that that makes this book so deeply strange and disturbing and illustrative all at once. Um, You know, there are times in Jeremiah where he's called to do strange activities, uh, to cook dung over a grill, you know, on the ground. This this is weird stuff, and it's all meant to be illustrations. And Hosea's whole life basically ends up being an illustration of weird, a weird expression of exactly the sort of, well, we're going to talk about what his life is an illustration of, but it's the thing that it's God condemning Israel for their unfaithfulness. And that's why Hosea has to live the life that he ends up living. So let me give you some historical background of the book of Hosea. The prophet Hosea is the son of Beeri. I don't know how to say his name, if it's Beeri or Beeri, but that's how it's spelled anyway, B-E-E-R-I. Uh, he lives during several kings. He lives during Uzziah, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so, you know, that also makes him a contemporary of Isaiah. Because remember, Isaiah gets called in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died. Uh, he's a contemporary of, of Amos. He's a contemporary of Micah. He's a prophet to the northern kingdom. So you remember, north and south split in half. Northern kingdom is Israel. Southern kingdom is Judah. And so his job for 50 years is to minister to the Northern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom is a difficult place to serve. Uh, If you remember, they don't have Jerusalem. They don't have biblical worship. Instead, they have sort of their own worship sites that they have set up. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but they recently found uh, the Tel Dan uh, worship site or the, the worship site that was in the territory of Dan. You can actually go online and look at pictures of it. You can actually see the altar. You can see where it was set up, where the northern kingdom actually did worship. Uh, So he serves from the year 750 to 715 BC, of course. That's why they're backwards. Um, uh, He lived during the time of the fall of the north. So when the northern kingdom falls to Assyria, he is serving there. He sees this. He witnesses these things. Uh, What's the historical period? What's going on during this time? Well, this is a time of economic expansion in the Northern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom is doing well. If you look in the book of Kings, Jonah makes a prophecy that the Northern Kingdom is going to economically prosper, and that's exactly what happens. The Northern Kingdom is increasing in its influence, increasing in its power. When that sort of thing happens with any nation, they suddenly get a target on their back. Uh, Suddenly, that nation suddenly becomes potentially a target for other nations. And that's what happens with the Northern Kingdom. Uh, And also, when you get wealth, when you accumulate power, there's something else that comes along with it, and that is temptation. When you get wealth, when you get power, you suddenly have the ability to execute on the things that you want, the things that you desire. And that's what happens with the Northern Kingdom. So they are facing temptations, and they're facing, not yet early on in the book, uh, pressure from the outside. Um, the Assyrians were occupying the, the northern, the eastern borders of the northern kingdom, but they hadn't pressed in yet. And so they didn't have this political pressure from the outside. Instead, in the northern kingdom, where are all the problems coming from? Who can guess? They're coming from inside, right? The call is coming from inside the house. And that's what's going on with the northern kingdom. The call is coming from inside the house. There are problems. There are issues, because here's what happens. Over the course of about 30 years, you have six kings who die. Three of them only lasted two years or less. So you just got this long string of, you know, a king on the throne for two years. Not a very good sign of a stable kingdom. And that's what's going on with the northern kingdom. Uh, they Three of them only last two years or less. Four of the six kings who die, die by assassination. Somebody kills them. So they're just... Turnover. You know, you get this job and you don't get very excited about it. You know, <laughs> I know what happened to the last guys. Uh, this is not looking good. Um, things are things are very unstable. In other words, in the Northern Kingdom from within, that makes them vulnerable from without. Uh, if the if the other nations can tell that they're unstable, it, it, again, it puts a target on their back. So they're wealthy and they're vulnerable. And that's the Northern Kingdom. So. Assyria rises during this time. Uh, the king of Assyria is Tiglath-Pileser III and Shalmaneser. Again, I just want to emphasize the Assyrians, they have the best names. Just the kings, just they're hard, they're grunty names, you know, that just, I don't know, something about the names of those kings. Um, but the fall of the northern kingdom is on the horizon in this book. So imagine he's talking to this kingdom. They are on the downturn. They're not doing well. Uh, and they can't even see it yet because they think they're doing great. They think they're doing wonderful. They, they almost have not a care in the world as he's addressing them. Uh, and that's precisely what the problem is. They do not see the problems. They don't see the problems. And when you don't see the problems, you need somebody to wake you up. And that's what Hosea does. Uh, he Not only does he prophesy that something bad's going to happen to the northern kingdom, but he witnesses the things that he prophesies. So he's got that in common with Isaiah. Uh, structure of the book I, actually I think you can split the book just into two pieces. Chapters one to three are his marriage to Gomer not the most feminine of names i i uh, don't see anybody naming their child Gomer today, uh, which is great don't 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 take that idea up anyway uh and then the <laughs> Chapters four to fourteen. You know, there's some people. About, I think it's funny that my name is Adam. I mean, the first person who sinned, Uh, the one who doomed us all. And my parents named me after him. So I guess Gomer's fine. Um, They might have known your character. What's that? I said they might have known your character. Yeah, maybe they. They just knew me. They just saw this crying kid, and they were like, "It's Adam." Chapter 4 to 14 is God's message to Israel. So you've got a marriage, then you've got a message. That's really the two ways that you might divide the book up, marriage and message. Um, So let's talk about the themes of this book. What are the things that stand out about the book of Hosea? Well, the big theme that stands out, and I've already mentioned it to you, is his marriage, the first three chapters. So in chapter 1, here's what happens. Uh, God calls Hosea to marry this woman named Gomer, who was a harlot. So here's the idea. Just like Israel was engaged in harlotry, so was Gomer. How's Israel engaged in harlotry? They love their idols. We're going to talk about the idolatry in a little bit. But but the northern kingdom, very much so, they see themselves even more than the southern kingdom as sort of making up their worship. Like they they don't have the temple. And so they're a little more freewheeling. And how they worship and how they approach worship and what they're supposed to do. You know, in the Old Testament, you've got all this written, these written standards for how worship takes place, how often it takes place. You know, they don't live up to them, but they at least have the book, they at least have the temple, they at least have all of this stuff laid out for them. The Northern Kingdom doesn't. The Northern Kingdom are very much running things on intuition in terms of what makes sense to us. What do we think we should do? How do we think we should worship? They don't have a word from God about how to do this. And so they they really do have the southern the uh, they 've a polluted worship there 's just no other way to put it, and so they 're living these things out so here 's gomer she 's united to her husband she 's united to Hosea, and what does she doing? She keeps breaking his heart, she keeps betraying her husband, and so in this illustration, Hosea is Yahweh, and he 's the betrayed husband. And then what happens? Every time that Gomer breaks away and violates the marriage, what happens? A child results. And the child, the first child, his name is Jezreel. And Jezreel would have been a significant name. To somebody who lives in the northern kingdom who lived under King Ahab, that name would have been really significant. Because Jezreel is the place where Ahab's descendants were struck down in judgment. Um, you can read Second Kings 10 if you want more details about what happened there. Uh, so naming the child Jezreel, this first child is Jezreel. Why, what does that mean? They're naming the child after a place of judgment and defeat, you know? You know, it'd be like naming your kid 9-11 or something, you know? It's just like giving your kid the most depressing name you can think of. And that's, that's kind of what Jezreel is. So this is God's way of saying the punishment is going to come upon the king of Israel. You're going to be held responsible. You're going to one day face judgment for what you're doing. The buck stops with you ultimately, king. And so you need to face this. And so God did it before, right? Jezreel's this reminder that God makes kings face judgment and the child gets named after that, right? The message is loud and clear. King, you're going to be judged too. Uh, There's a second child. The child's name is No Mercy. Uh, It's a great name because... Uh, there's no ambiguity at all about what that means, right? God is not going to have mercy on Israel. You can't keep depending upon the grace of God and the mercy of God and just think that it's just going to keep flying and no one's ever going to care. And God's never going to care. And God's never going to hold you accountable. That's loud and clear. The message is no, no mercy. That's the second child. And then the third child is not my people. Uh, Again. Yeah. This is actually very Puritan-type names. If you ever listen, the Puritans picked really interesting names for their children, Uh, some of them incredibly long. Um, Just look up on – I think this is a a reliable thing to do. (laughs) Look up weird Puritan names on Google, and you'll just find some great stuff. And they'll put no mercy and not my people to shame. Um, uh, but he, he calls them not my people. What's he doing? He's saying God rejects them, right? He's not going to be their God. That's what he's saying in verse 9. He says, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Um, the harshest thing that he could say. I mean, the harshest possible thing that he could say. The interesting thing is that he still takes them. Uh, he still takes them back. It's like, you violated the vows You've broken this marriage, and yet I'm still going to stay with you anyway. Uh, this, is, this, this union is utterly shattered, and yet I'm going to still stay faithful to it. I'm going to stay faithful to this shattered union is what God ends up saying. Um, so the theme here is very clear. The illustration is painful. It's accurate. God is faithful. He stays faithful to his people. They don't. Um, There's a beauty to this narrative. I know that it just seems like an ugly narrative. It just seems like a depressing narrative. Um, But here's where the beauty is. You and I are not faithful to our calling. We are not faithful to the call that God puts on our lives. We fail and we fail. And because of that, we have some kinship with Gomer. We read the passage. We get so mad at Gomer. We're like, why does she keep doing this? Hosea seems like a pretty swell guy. He seems like a pretty nice husband. Uh, He seems like he takes care of her. He seems like... You know, he, he, he looks after this woman. Why, why would she treat him this way? And we read the passage and we just kind of want to come down on Gomer's against Gomer and just say, straighten yourself out, lady. Why are you like this? And we have to read the passage and see ourselves in Gomer. Yeah. Um, we have to because, because we certainly don't get to be, we don't get to be uh, Hosea in the situation. That's not us. We're, we're not the one who's, uh, who's taking God back. God is the one who takes us back time and again. Um, back before he, he went off the deep end, uh, Derek Webb, the music, Christian musician, he had this song where he sang. He "Saying I am a whore, I do confess, but I put you on like a wedding dress. And that is, this is the, the, the book of the Bible, at least, that, that, that song reminds me of. This idea that I am like Gomer. I have a kinship with Gomer. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an illustration of comfort and condemnation all at once, right? Because you hear it and you see yourself and you feel ashamed. And at the same time, you see how many times Hosea keeps taking her back and God saying, that's me. That's me. I keep taking you back, right? There's, there's gospel illustration here in the midst of broken law keeping. Uh, he is a patient God, far more patient than you or I would be. Um, and so the marriage is a big theme of the book, not necessarily setting it aside, but another big theme of this book is the idea of God's covenant, because you have this idea that, uh, that God's covenant is the through line and how he deals with his people. There are these curses and blessings that God holds out to people uh, who are in the covenant and they show themselves here, especially in the first three chapters. You see the blessings, you see the cursings. So from a a human perspective, you know, we could imagine it would be much easier if God would just reject the Northern Kingdom and move on, and yet he also feels... Uh, obligated and bound by this covenant he made with Abraham, right? He made this covenant with Abraham. He says, I'm going to keep rescuing. I'm going to keep redeeming in spite of of your faithlessness. And so that's why we call it a a covenant of grace, right? It's not a covenant of merit. It's not a covenant that they deserve. All of it is fulfilled uh, uh, by God. Uh, from God's perspective and so that ends up being the thing that binds God to them it ends up being the thing that he says I'm going to keep taking you back I'm going to take you back time and time again because I made a covenant not with you guys but with your father and because I made it with your father by extension I made it with you and I'm going to keep taking you back and so he does another theme of this book is idolatry um Idolatry, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of an idea, at least of the the idolatry situation in the the kingdom at that time. Um, If you understand Canaanite Baalism, then it helps you know exactly what's going on, why they're tempted to do this stuff. You might think to yourself, what's so tempting about idolatry? And um, Matthew talked about idolatry this morning, about the, the idolatry that you don't see, the idolatry that shows up in your heart, that shows up in your life. But they actually literally were tempted by idols. They're tempted by Baal because who is Baal? Baal is the rain and storm god of Canaan. Uh, he, his work affected fertility. It affected agriculture. It affected whether plants were growing. In other words, it basically impacted your whole life. Baal is the most important of all of the false gods uh, in the land where you're in an agrarian society and you need the plants to grow. And so what do they do? They thank Baal when the crops are growing, when there's grass, when there are people having babies. Um, When there's growth going on, they thank Baal. They they say Baal is the reason why these things happen. Um, But Baal has an enemy in the ancient Canaanite uh, view. The enemy of Baal is Mot. And Mot is the Hebrew word for death. He's the god of sterility. Um, And Mot and Baal are always at war with each other. And so how do you strengthen Baal? You strengthen Baal so that you can flourish and do well by offering sacrifices. In other words, if you want the god of fertility to produce more fertility for your people, to give more fertility to the land, what do you do? Well, you do the things that bring fertility. So you give your crops, right? Because crops are an aspect of fertility. Um, you give him back something that he gave to you. Um, you, you give crops. Uh, you give, um, you perform acts of fertility like sex. They would, they would have temples set up where those things would take place. Because what's happening? When you do those things, you're not just doing something that you like to do, but you're actually doing something that strengthens Baal to defeat moat, right? Less death, more life, more fertility. Um, they would sacrifice their own children right? What a greater symbol of fertility do human beings have than their own children? And they would take their children and they would kill them. And they would hope that Baal would receive their sacrifice and that there would be rain in the land and that the crops would grow. So this Baal background, this ba- Baal idolatry helps you understand the desperation of a people who are willing to do anything to have the riches and the wealth and all of the things that they hope will come their way. Again, it just reminds me of the world today. We don't have bail, but we will sacrifice our children in order to have economic prosperity. We will sacrifice our children in order to go further places in life to achieve the dreams that we want. We have things in common with these people that we think are so primitive. Uh, our own society just resonates more with this stuff than they, we probably realize. Certainly, I think most Americans don't realize it. Um, But this Baal narrative forms the background of the book. So when you see them being so absorbed in the idea of sacrificing to Baal, stop thinking of them as primitive. Start thinking of them as selfish. Because that's what they are. They're thinking about themselves. Uh, And they don't care who the God is. All they care about is results. And they think Baal's going to give us results and Yahweh's not. And so they keep going to Baal and they keep rejecting Yahweh. So that's why they're Gomer. Um... I want to mention one other thing here, which is judgment and salvation. Judgment for sin is this really prominent theme. It's basically in all the minor prophets, but you see it here as well. Um, Gomer's immorality is grounds for divorce. And yet God's continued mercy is this other ongoing theme that happens in the book. And so God is showing mercy to his sinful people. It's emphasized a lot in the book, right? Uh, Gomer has redemption in chapter three. She has redemption in chapter 14. This is one of these books that presents to us in a stark way how how ugly sin is, right? Because you're reading the book and you're going, this is ugly. This is the ugly, the, the repetition of the sin, the repetition of the taking back. There's just something about it where you're just like, poor Hosea and, and what he's going through. And yet it's the mercy of God. Uh, it, it is painful to, to pardon sin. It is painful to actually address sin when you see Hosea take her back. That hurt that he has to be going through is not unlike the sort of hurt that that God endured in order to bring forgiveness to us, right? We think about Christ. We think about the forgiveness that does not come bloodlessly. Forgiveness doesn't come painlessly. Instead, he's got to purchase it with suffering, with sacrifice, and with blood. So this book really sets us up the gospel, It sets us up to understand not only the depth of forgiveness and the ugliness of sin, but also the cost that's involved. Mm-hmm. Um, forgiveness and pardon and grace don't come easily. And they're not cheap. They're the hardest thing in the world. And yet God accomplishes it. So there's probably more we could say about Hosea. But I want to go to the book of Joel. Unlike Hosea, we don't have as uh, good of an understanding about when this book takes place. So this is a a collection of short poems that explore a season of crisis in the life of God's people and how the judgment they're experiencing doesn't mean they've been totally abandoned by God. So just because judgment takes place does not mean that God has cast you off. That's the idea of this book. Uh, The book of Joel stands out for a few reasons. One of the things that makes it stand out is it doesn't have the regular markers of time. When you look at the, the beginning of Joel, it just says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And there's no date, There's no king. There's none of the regular time markers that you normally find when you read one of the minor prophets. And so that's one of the things that makes the book stand out. Another thing that makes it stand out is that Joel is familiar with other scriptural books. He quotes from Isaiah, for example. Uh, There are a few passages I can point to if, if any of you want to know later. Um, Another thing that makes Joel stand out is he doesn't accuse Israel of any specific sin. Usually these prophets have idolatry. Uh, Usually they have some kind of of accusation to bring, and Joel doesn't do that. Joel doesn't have any specific accusations. So all of those things make this book quite different. The other thing that makes it stand out is is the locust plague. It's just sort of this dominant thing that just... You know, Just like when you think of Hosea, you think of, of his marriage to Gomer. When you think of Joel, you think of the locust plague. So who's the author? The author of the book is Joel. He's the son of Pethuel. His name means Ya'el is how you would say it in Hebrew. That means Yahweh is God. Uh, likely he resides in Jerusalem since that's the setting of the book. This is where the book takes place. This is probably where he lives as well, but we just don't know exactly when. That's not going to keep me at least from encouraging us to think a little about where the historical setting for this book might be. Um, there are no temporal references in this book. You look in the book in vain to find the names of kings. Um, my, uh, you, all you have in the book really are internal illusions. So you'll see things talked about in the book that help you identify a time period when it would make sense that those words are being used. Um, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, if I had to venture a guess, if I had to make the case for one view or the other, I tend to think that this is a post-exile book. If I'm right, then that means that it, was, that it takes place around 550 BC after they come back from the exile. Um, I'll give you a few hints in the book that, that might help us understand why the book takes place during this time. One of the things is that he references the Greeks in chapter 3, verse 6. He makes a reference to the Greeks. Which suggests a later date, because before the exile, Greece is very little known on the world scene. Uh, They did exist; Greece obviously was existed, but their mention likely means that they had become bigger players on the world scene. Remember, uh, you've got Alexander the Great coming a few years later, so uh, it would make sense that Greece is on the rise and therefore known in a place as far off as Israel. What's the reference on that? It's Joel three six. Yeah. I'll just read it aloud. You have sold the peoples of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. So if you were, if you, if the book was written in eight or 900 BC, it is harder to, it's harder to understand why the Greeks would have been thought of as a threat or something that would be talked about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the Greeks actually come. So when you, if you, in the narrative, it makes more sense if they're closer to the time when the Greeks actually do end up coming. <clears throat> Unless it's very prophetic, very far out, and it's you don't ever want to discount that. Um, well, it is prophetic either way, but it makes more sense if the Greeks if that word means something to the Israelites, and I think it wouldn't have meant something to the Israelites in 900. Yeah, Mark. So when was that great battle between the Greeks and the Assyrians? That was certainly this, not far from this period. Are you uh, are you talking about Alexander the Great? No, no. I'm not sure i mean oh are you talking about troy
1: no no okay
0: least, you know the, I, I gotta go back and, okay you and, can you I can know. follow up I, I yeah i just read um in the notes on esther that he was having this big party xerxes maybe planning for an assault on the Greeks, which they totally botched or something like yeah. that is that what you're talking about yeah yeah, yeah. That's yeah. well this would have been around that time because xerxes is 500 uh fifth century yeah I mean, in any battle between the assyrians and the certainly on Yeah so this, so this makes more sense for I think it makes more sense for this to be around the 500s. Um, there appears to be no king in Israel. You read this book in vain to look for any reference to a sitting king. Uh, when they come back from exile, who are the leaders now? They're the elders. Uh, they're the priests. that's who's leading Israel. Uh, when they come back from exile. So the fact that no king gets referenced, no king is used as the time marker, there may be a very good reason for that. There may be no king. So that might be the reason why. Uh, there is no mention in this book of the Northern Kingdom or leaders associated with the Northern Kingdom. Uh, if you, actually, if you look at the book, Judah considers itself Israel. In chapter three, verses one and two, chapter two, verse 27, um, Israel, uh, Judah is just called Israel. Um, if the Northern Kingdom was still standing, then the Northern Kingdom would have been called Israel. So that's, that's one marker, I think, that helps us understand the Northern Kingdom is no more at this point. Um, they appear to use the writings of Isaiah, Amos, and Ezekiel. Again, I have some references, but they're all numbers. So unless you want them, you can come to me later and ask me where these passages get quoted in the book. Um, There's a mention of Jews being dispersed to other lands in chapter three, the first two verses. It makes sense in a post-exile context. It doesn't really make sense before. That doesn't mean it would be nonsense if it was an earlier date, but it makes more sense in after the exile. Uh, More than likely, I think it's fair to conclude Joel is a post-exile prophet. That would give the book a fifth-century date. Now, here's the thing: this is disputed by good scholars. Um, you know, Again, all the things that we normally use to date a book are not here yet. And so what that also means is that if I'm wrong, it doesn't do any harm to biblical inerrancy or, or anything like that. Because the book's not making those claims outwardly. We're just inferring some stuff from what we can see. There are some arguments that it's earlier. Um, I will give you just a few just because you seem interested, or some of you do anyway. Uh, <laughs> The Jewish canon lists uh, this book with the pre-exile prophets. So, so if you're looking through your Jewish organization, because they, they have a different canon order than, uh, than we do. Uh, if you look at that, they actually have um, uh, this book, list, Joel, listed right alongside the other pre-exile prophets. So they seem to group them together. Um, you have references to uh, events like the Day of Yahweh that are made. Uh, by the time of of Amos, the concept of the Day of the Lord gets misunderstood, misinterpreted. Uh, some people see that as an as an argument that this book was written during an earlier time when the Day of the Lord would have been more coherent. Um, one of the arguments I read, I didn't find it very convincing, but I'm trying to give you guys some uh, some balance here. Uh, there's a locust plague at the beginning of the book. This would have been devastating to Israel in its earlier years when it was weaker, when it was more uh, frail but it makes more sense that it would have been an early period that a locust plague devastates Israel. I don't think that's true because I think when you come back from exile, uh, you are very vulnerable and a locust plague would have devastated a lot of progress that you'd be trying to make very quickly. So I don't find the argument very persuasive. Uh, You have mention of Israel's earlier enemies like Philistia and Edom, which lends to an earlier date, some people say. And then some people argue that actually Those other books aren't quoting Joel. Joel is quoting those other books. And so it, Joel, and that's because, or sorry, those other books are quoting Joel. Um, That's the argument that some people make. And I think, well, yeah, actually, that makes the references, uh, the overlap between things that are said in Joel and Isaiah and Ezekiel, a lot less of a problem. So either way, somebody's quoting somebody here. Somebody is uh, using some other people's um, statements and arguments and phrasing. So anyway... The date isn't actually that important. You might think it is because I sure spent a lot of time on it. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't help you interpret the book, uh, especially a book like this that doesn't... It really is a timeless message. This book really does have a timeless message. And so, you know, I had two seminary professors. We had Mike McKelvey and we had Miles Van Pelt. And Mike McKelvey was, uh, was sure that we should give the book no date at all. And then the other one, uh, I think it was Miles leaned towards uh, dating it as after the exile. Uh, and so you know you want to get them both in a room to have a fist fight over it and they 'd be like but i don 't want to fight over this I don 't care enough <laughs> uh, Seminary students want the professors to square off it 's fun for us. we want to see grudge matches, and we never get it. It seems like so, a lot of disappointment if you 're a seminary student so um, just in the five minutes we 've got before we need a break. Uh, a few themes one is the locust plague this book kicks off with a disaster uh, a disaster that's just happened it is a locust plague for an agrarian society where everybody is dependent on food to keep growing we don't know what it's like to live in a society where and we we don't but we've had it tested haven't we the supply chain we've had the supply chain tested uh, and we've seen weaknesses in the supply chain, but isn't it interesting still how resilient the supply chain is to disruption? Uh, even in spite of all of these, the things that have gone on, uh, we continue to have food on the shelves. We continue to have. Uh, uh, meat on the shelves. We end, up, we end up still, sometimes we can find toilet paper, right? We can find the stuff that, that we really need. But if, imagine, imagine just having one bad winter or one bad spring or just a season of flooding where all the food gets wiped out. And there is no supply chain. There's just no food. There's just nothing to eat, right? Because it all spoils. It doesn't keep and so that's the kind of thing you're talking about. You're talking about a society where they're very dependent on a good harvest. So when these locusts come through, you know, this once every 10-year uh, event or whatever, the locusts eat everything. It's, you might as well have just signed everybody's death warrant. That's kind of what you're looking at here. And so the locust plagues, the locust plague was a terrible judgment. It was something that you, you really, you, you, you fought tooth and nail against. Um, it's also more than just a mere judgment. It's not just a one-time judgment. It is, it's is—it's like a picture. It's like a forerunner of the fact that there's coming a greater judgment one day. So there's a great day of the Lord coming. This is a little day of the Lord. This is a little suffering. This is a little something. There's a thing floating around me. I'm going to get it. <laughs> just look crazy. Um, you ever swatted a bee and you're just like, everyone just thinks you're dancing? Yeah. <laughs> um, no well then you must like bees and you must like getting stung um so so uh, little sufferings and i will just say the locust plague is a big suffering but almost every suffering that goes on in our lives in the grand scale of things is a little suffering right it's it's so much smaller than what we could face. It's so much uh, tamer than what God could bring. Um, I stub my toe, right? That's a little judgment. But even, even the miseries of this life that are really serious, even the loss of life, these are like little pictures of the big judgment that's coming one day. Uh, Jesus does this, right? Jesus, Jesus thinks of suffering like this. He thinks of death even like this. Because you remember, they ask Jesus about the Galileans whose blood was spilled. And Jesus then takes this awful moment and he interprets it in the bigger picture. He looks at it and he says, he says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he takes this little suffering, which if you you ask them, they would say, this isn't little suffering. This is death. But he, he says, look at this thing that has happened and take it as a warning. Take it as a shot across the bow. And the book of Joel is giving us this moment where Israel has gotten a shot across the bow. They have seen suffering on a large scale, this locust plague. And yet it's just like a drop in the bucket compared to what's coming because there's coming a day of the Lord. There's coming a great day of the Lord where we're going to have to be held accountable for the things we've done, for the things that we have uh, not done. Uh, God is going to hold us accountable. And so suffering, the way that, the, way the function, uh, suffering functions in Joel is to remind us that there's a great day of the Lord coming, not just a little day of the Lord, but there's a great day of the Lord coming. Me. Yeah. Is the book of Joel the only one that references the plague, uh, this uh, locust plague, I believe so. It doesn't mean that there, that there aren't locusts in other books, but um, the book, that's one of the definitive standout things about the book of Joel. Somebody could come to me. I, I'm digging in my memory banks, and I think that's right. <laughs> my memory banks also sometimes have RAM slots that are empty. So, um, often comp- that uses locusts, though, in the scripture to picture the devastation of our riches and our wealth coming there. I mean you think in the book Revelation where you have the coming destruction is pictured by these horrid locusts coming to devour mm-hmm. everything and everyone there right they, they leave so little behind you can't stop them yeah. does Malachi also reference locusts I don't remember I don't think so. I, I won't say no I'm afraid to say no then if you look you tell me later how's that sound You've got Lagos. Let's find out together. Um, (laughs) um, So in chapter two, there's this call to repentance. It goes along with this little judgment. In chapter two, it says the Lord had pity on his people. In other words, God is showing compassion even as he's bringing judgment, even as he's showing them what he's capable of. He's kind, right? It says uh, in chapter 2, he, get, he talks about the kindness that he's going to show. In fact, I have to quote this even though we we're at 2.15 and it's really time for us to break. I'm just going to go ahead and read a little more because when you get to the book of Acts, one of the things you see is Simon Peter stand up in front of everybody and he says, this passage from Joel chapter 2 has come true on this day as the Holy Spirit fell upon all these people. What does it say in Joel 2? It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I'll just pause for a second and say... That 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 you know, moon, the sky darkening, the uh, the shows and wonders in the heavens. This is apocalyptic language. This is end time language. It's not saying that in the end times you're, the sky's literally going to turn dark and sun's going to literally turn red. Uh, it's using this language to talk about everything changing, about everything being overturned, about uh, the order that we know of the universe being modified from what it is, and he's saying. He's basically saying Acts chapter 2 is like the sky turning to dark, and it's like the sun turning to blood. It's like, or sorry, it's like the moon turning to blood. Um, And then it says in this verse, it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So how does the Lord have pity on Israel? He has pity by pouring out his spirit. Um... One of the struggles of church history, one of the things that people struggle with sometimes is this perceived division between the Old and New Testament. But then here's what happens when the apostles are reading the Old Testament. What are they doing? They're seeing themselves here. They're seeing themselves as inheritors of this promise. And they're saying, see, it's not like the Old Testament is irrelevant to the Christian life. They're reading the Old Testament and they're saying, this is us. This is our experience. Um, Peter is quoting this from this prophecy and he's saying, this is being fulfilled right now here in Jerusalem. The sky is turning to blood. The sky is being rolled back. All of these dramatic things that you might think maybe will happen someday if we squint at them. Peter's looking at them and saying, it's happening now. And so Paul quotes from this in Romans 10, 13. Uh, One of the things you see is the New Testament authors are basically saying that God is keeping these promises that he made. And so the New Testament is the unraveling. It's the unveiling of all that stuff actually happening, all the stuff that God has been laying down. Um, Again, the book is timeless in the sense that if all of these things are said in 800 B.C. or if they're said in 550 B.C., it doesn't change the message, which is that our God is a God who is going to pour out his blessings on his people and when you read the New Testament, you get to just enjoy seeing that actually happen right before our eyes. So there's a, there's a lot of beauty here. Um, but that's it. That's the end of Joel. We went an extra four minutes, but we got to finish Joel. So technically finished. I'll just use the, that word. Um, but that's what, kind of what we're going to do with all these minor prophets. We're going to have quicker looks at these books. Again, we're trying to get a big overview rather than try to go through every detail. Well, let me pray for us and we can, we can go and get the kids. Uh, our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who has mercy on your people, Lord. Whether uh, we see ourselves in Gomer, the harlot, Lord, or uh, whether we see ourselves as the people uh, who suffer suffering the locust plague, God. Whether we're experiencing sufferings in our lives, oh God. Uh, whether we are. Um, trying to minister to people who are experiencing sufferings in their life, oh God, I pray that you would help us to remember that there is coming a day when you hold us accountable, when you will call on us to answer for the things that we have done and the life that we have lived. And so I pray, God, when that day comes, that we would be standing in the righteousness of Christ, that we would be trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, that we would be those people, oh God, who enjoy the truths of the gospel, Lord, that in Christ you, would, you adopt us, make us your family, and that now you will never leave us or forsake us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.